Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Elise, and with me are my co-hosts, Andy. Hello. Tessa. Hello. And Sam. Hello. I'm taking over Mumble this week because I assigned the host pop culture content that is important to me so I could come on and talk about it. The main theme of these films is... Elise remembers these films fondly from her childhood and still enjoys them immensely. I did also talk to my dad about how he probably let me watch Time After Time way too young, given the whole Jack the Ripper of it all. (laughs) How old were you when you first watched Time After Time? I would say probably 10. The movie came out before I was born, but I definitely remember talking with someone about it when I was like 15 and I had not seen it for many years at that point right I was just thinking about like the opening sequence of that film (laughs) yeah like (laughs) not to get ahead of ourselves as that is the third movie we're going to talk about but I just wanted to throw that in there I mean I think we all have a movie from our childhood that our parents let us watch way too young because they didn't remember certain things about it Yeah, this is definite. That is the epitome of that movie for me. We are going to discuss the 1938 movie Holiday, directed by George Sukor. Is it Sukor or Kukor? I can never pronounce his name correctly. Kukor. It looks like I would say Sukor, but I know someone with that last name, and it is spelled differently, so. Second, we're going to discuss the 1961 film 123, directed by Billy Wilder. And last, which we've already mentioned, uh, we are going to discuss the um, 1979 film Time After Time, directed by Nicholas Meyer. I'm so excited. I had never seen any of these films before. Sam and Andy, have you seen any of these before? I have seen Holiday a very long time ago, and uh, probably at a similarly uh, stupid age to have seen the movie. Uh, I have also seen Time After Time. I haven't, I think... I saw the beginning of Time After Time when I was, you know, like, not 10 yet, probably. But you didn't remember it till we'd almost no, finished the like, film. Well, we talked about, we talked about on Sam Watches Star Trek Voyagers, the TV show, and I definitely remember that, but I realized almost all the way through watching Time After Time that I was remembering a scene from that and attributing it as part of my memory of Voyagers. Oh. You see what I'm saying? Oh, okay. Yeah, I had Because they're very that. similar. Yeah. They're both about time travel. Right. That were made Somewhere. in the early 80s. Yeah. And everything looked the same in the early 80s. Yeah. That's exciting. Um, I didn't realize Andy had seen two of these, but I think we can work with that. But it, I was very excited to show people these films. Not one, two, three, but the other two were ones I had, like, forgotten I loved and then went back and watched probably within the last like 10-15 years and been like oh yeah I remember I did love that when I was younger so it was it's been fun to like rewatch. you are like a one two three enthusiast like from what I know about you you have introduced a lot of people to one two three in fact there are probably many people listening to this podcast <laughs> Who have watched one, two, three with you. Um, or like watched it and then told me. I'm laughing because Melissa, our friend Melissa, wanted to watch it and she couldn't find it at her library. And uh, her boyfriend actually 
got it from his library and like brought it to Chicago <laughs> to watch with her one time. And so I just felt very much um, <laughs> loved in that in that moment. <laughs> this is the second time I've podcasted about one, two, three, actually. The first time was on Shame Files pod, which no longer exists, which, with our friend Ryan and J- his wife Jill. It was similar vibes to Monkey and that they would talk about things that they hadn't seen before. So things that were on their shame list. Which I find interesting that this would be on someone's shame list because I don't think it's the most known about movie. It's not a super famous Billy Wilder film and usually... People only hear about it when they are going through all of the Billy Wilder movies, which makes me wonder actually how my dad got into watching it, but I forgot to ask him, so we don't have that information. So, little fun fact about 123, uh, I had not heard about it until we recorded the episode with Jordan Morris, who was trying to decide between covering 123 or The Sopranos for, for Monkey, so... We were this close to having covered 123 before on a uh, separate episode. Well, I, if that were, were the case, I would have picked a different movie, which I don't have an idea of what it would have been, but it would have been something different. In an alternate universe, it would have been My Cousin Vinny. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see. What's the other one that we watched together? I'm like blanking. No. The one with Tim Curry that you showed Oh, yes. Me. We would have watched Oscar. <laughs> which Oscar. is a Thank Sylvester you. Stallone movie that is ridiculous. And it's a comedy, and it was panned, but I love it. It has a very low rating on Rotten Tomatoes, like a 12 or something. I'm pretty sure it is not the lowest rated Sylvester Stallone comedy, though. What would that be? Stop, or my mom will shoot. (laughs) (laughs) It's an intriguing title. I'm actually curious now if, like, which one is rated lower. They came out, like... 11% on Rotten Tomatoes. For which one? Stop or my mom will shoot. What is what is Oscar? What's Oscar have? It's probably me like twelve or something. Like I feel like that's almost the same. It is twelve. Yep, correct. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> my childhood Sylvester Stallone comedy beats yours for being bad. <laughs> that's right. Um, every. I'm trying to remember the the mom. The mom is Estelle Getty, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Sophia stands rise up who i knew not from golden girls but from mannequin Uh, i've never seen mannequin somehow oh really oh yeah well so remember we talked about just the other day that if i did a sam assigns all y'all it would be footloose and what i didn't say after that was because i didn't want to find out how many of you haven't seen mannequin because that would be the second one I've always wanted yeah. to see Mannequin, so I'll have to watch that. And oh, it's re- so I'll good. I'll re- watch it. I've, I have never had interest in Footloose, but I would watch it if you assigned it to me, but also I don't want to watch it otherwise. All I have to do is find a third movie that has one of the other stars of Sex in the City. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Because you've got Sarah Jessica Parker in Footloose and Kim Cattrall in Mannequin. The first movie we are going to discuss, as I said earlier, is Holiday. It stars Katherine Hepburn as Linda Seaton, Cary Grant as Johnny Case, Doris Nolan as Julia Seaton, Lou Ayers as Ned Seaton. Yes, I'm just going to list everybody. Edward Everett Horton as Nick Potter. You may know his voice. 
as the narrator from Fractured Fairy Tales. That is how I know this voice because I remember watching it recently and be like, that is the Fractured Fairy Tales guy. I recognize that voice. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yes. Jean Dixon as Susan Potter and Henry Colker as Edward Seaton. It also has Henry Danielle in it as like the snooty cousin. I can't remember his name. They called him Seton as his first name, yeah, which I found like confusing. Yeah, like Seton Seton or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I don't know. I have to bring him up because he's the villain in The Seahawk, which we watched and talked about the other week, and he was in a lot of Errol Flynn movies as oh. well. I recognized his voice when we were watching it. I liked the snooty cousin's wife as well, whose name I forgot. All I can think about is like a crossover between Holiday and Mortal Kombat, because I keep thinking Johnny Cage instead of Johnny Cage. <laughs> <laughs> it would be such a different i mean there'd still be a lot of like backflips and somersaulting but there was a lot of acrobatics in this film for those who haven't seen this before you may remember george cooker's directing katherine heppard and Cary grant in his more popular film the philadelphia story which came out two years after this so i'm gonna give a little summary um which i took from the official summaries of uh this film Johnny Case, a free-thinking financier, which is, like, a funny thing because I don't know that that actually... Anyway. Has finally found the girl of his dreams, Julia Seaton, the spoiled daughter of a socially prominent millionaire, and she agreed to marry him. But when Johnny plans a holiday for the two to enjoy life while they're still young, his fiancée has other plans, and that is for Johnny to work at her father's bank. I love how this summary doesn't even mention the second lead of the film, yes. Catherine Hepburn's character. <laughs> yes, Lynn, the black the black sheep herself, um, Linda Seaton. The the mad woman in the third playroom. story playroom. Yeah. Yes. Oh. So, what is everyone's uh, first thoughts on this film, Sam? I would like to start with you. As I said to Tessa, this film is my man Godfrey without the homelessness problem. You're not wrong. It does have a lot of vibes of that film. Yes, the forgotten man is actually fully gainfully employed in this movie and actually successful and upwardly middle class. The George Cukor special. We're going to get into a problem without actually getting into it. So My Man Godfrey is is a great movie. It came out a couple of years before Holiday, and it's about... Uh, it's taking that screwball comedy, it happened one night kind of formula and applying it to the the problem film, which was another formula for films, you know, where they take a big topic and handle it. And so I think what Kukor is doing is trying to do My Man Godfrey again, but instead of William Powell and not Myrna Loy, we just talked about, it's Carol Lombard. Instead of that, putting together Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn, which will be a great idea that we'll discover in the Philadelphia story. This feels like it wants Cukor's effort to do what happened with my man Godfrey, but also what he will eventually accomplish in the Philadelphia story. It feels I'd like, like to kind point of out Kath- draft. Yeah, Catherine Hepburn does not get pushed in the face in this movie. That's yeah, there's fair. no like... no physical abuse between spouses in this movie no there's 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 acrobatics instead i feel like the animosity that linda shows is just mostly towards like her class and her father and like she hasn't had like 
any difficulties in life yet. Is it a Katherine Hepburn movie if her character doesn't have animosity to something or something? I don't think it is. No, I don't think so either. I definitely agree with Sam. I enjoyed watching this film because I always enjoy watching films like this. And obviously, Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn are wonderful actors. But I do think it's trying to do too many things. It doesn't really synthesize the screwball comedy and the problem film in a way that I think works as well. Like there were just scenes that seemed really out of place for some of the characters. It requires the characters to do too much heavy lifting, I think. I would have been happier if it was a screwball comedy or a problem film. I just don't feel like the mashup works particularly well, but I still really enjoyed watching it. Like I I enjoyed seeing especially certain scenes of this film but I just didn't think it necessarily coalesced together into what, for an example, the Philadelphia story does. I don't like Cary Grant. Interesting. Can you tell just me? Just in general? Can you explain that? Don't 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 really dig uh, Archie Leach. You can find me on Letterboxd at Archie Leach 9. <laughs> That's what I was waiting for. <laughs> uh, I, nothing else. Okay, look. I like a lot of older comedies. I know I like to pretend that if it was was made before 1990, it's it's worthless or whatever. There are much much better Cary Grant films like one uh Mother Goose. Mother Goose is hilarious. The other Cary Grant films that I can't think of right now. I recently watched His Girl Friday, which is a good one. I haven't seen His Girl Friday. I haven't seen any of the Hitchcock ones with him in it. I always have a problem. It is very difficult for me to enjoy movies that are so aggressively Hayes Code era because it's like, oh, there there can't be this kind of tension and there, there can't be any real character moment. And then when we talk about one, two, three, which does some very clever things to get around it, something like this that doesn't really do clever things to, to get around the Hayes Code, but also was made right after the Hayes Code, so... Yeah, uh, th- this is this is fine. I I think some like it hot is much better. I think it happened one night is is phenomenally better, just as far as just screwball comedies. But I also think one two three is really ruined any chance that this movie had in me taking it uh, seriously. So that's fair. I also don't. I wouldn't put them in the same genre. Maybe I don't know. I I will say that for me, the reason why I love this film, and this is not like a defense, like you're all entitled to your feelings on it, was that I loved, younger me was like, oh, I love that Linda like hates her rich family and wants to get away from them. And that was enough for like younger Elise. You you, you know what? Maybe... I need to re- revise what I said about Cary Grant because I've only seen Mother Goose in this. <laughs> yeah, you can't. I don't know that you're allowed to say you like or don't like uh, an actor based on the, these two films. So I, I take back everything I said. I, I thought I thought this was a different one. Um, I thought this was a different actor. I don't know who I thought he was, but I thought he was a different actor. So there we go. That's that. I'm sorry. Archie Leach, you're back in my good graces until I watch one of your movies, and then we'll discuss it. I'll be watching Vertigo sometime soon, I'm sure. Also not in that. <laughs> oh. Do you not like Jimmy Stewart, maybe? Is that where we're, like... Maybe. I don't know. I, I, I like Jimmy Stewart, though. He's great. Some Like It Hot is not a screwball comedy, and 
the the genre of screwball comedy exists because the Hayes Code does. So not liking Hayes Code workaround shenanigans would absolutely make somebody not like screwball comedies. A screwball comedy is a very specific subgenre of comedy that is essentially enemies to lovers. Right. And I know that now. I can say that now. But it's very specifically capturing the idea of flirtation under the guise of not flirtation, right? Which is, you know, the enemies to lovers special, right? And so, you know, the screwball comedy is named after the, the screwball pitch, which is, again, I believe, a form of a slider, which is essentially a pitch that goes in a different direction than you think it will, which is why it's such a hard pitch to hit. And so the idea is, is that a screwball comedy is a screwball comedy if the two love interests, it does not look like they should or will be together. And then by various machinations, you realize, usually at the very end, that they do belong together and now they are together. But allows you, it allows you to evade all of the Hayes Code prohibitions against flirty behavior. Well, and I think that's what I didn't like about this film is that I think that Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn have really great chemistry, but the way that they're situated in this film, the the main thing that's keeping them apart is the fact that he's with her sister, not that they're really enemies yeah. because she likes him immediately. Like yeah. she's all in on him as a character. In fact, if I heard my sister talk that way about my fiance, I would definitely be having a conversation with her at some point about like, Hey, like <laughs> what's going on? I mean, I am lovely though. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I, I so. understand. But I just know that these two actors have a lot of potential in terms to, of enemies to lovers. Like I just kept expecting Grant to get sillier. I kept expecting Hepburn to be more biting, you know, that like yeah. sarcastic energy that she has in the Philadelphia story and in African Queen with Humphrey Bogart. And so like, it was more like I knew what these actors were capable of in terms of the screwball comedy. And I just wasn't seeing them push themselves far enough in this particular film, if that makes sense. That does make sense. And I do feel like they are, as a viewer, it's really obvious right away that they are have more in common or than, you know, Johnny and Julia. And it felt like the way that they have their chemistry almost makes it so like Julia's existence doesn't make sense or it doesn't it doesn't make sense that they I can't imagine having watched this movie like Johnny and Julia falling in love with each other. See, that's the thing that I find the most interesting about the movie is that, you know, okay, they clearly have a connection, but he's engaged to his sister. It's going to take a big lift for me to be okay with the severing of relationship 1 for the connection of relationship two. And it is the giant heel turn that Julia takes. Yeah. It turns out she, she is like one step away from Potter and it's a wonderful life. (laughs) (laughs) And see, that was the thing that I found most interesting about this film was the Seton family drama. I would have, been way more interested in this film if it actually teased out some of the nuances like if it just focused on this as a drama and these relationships within this like very dysfunctional family right i think that 
the character of Ned especially is very tragic. I mean, I think Julia is tragic too, but for completely other reasons. Yeah. And I do actually wish there was a sequel of Linda and Johnny coming back for him and like helping him with his addiction, yeah. and breaking free of his father and maybe coming out because he's the most queer coded character in the film. Right. Like you just kind of feel like these people are trapped together and they can't stop hurting each other. Like, and I think that that would have been a really interesting focal point of the movie if they weren't trying to do so many other things as well that makes sense I do feel like there was a lot of drama with the family and there's definitely you get the impression that Mr. Seaton probably they didn't come out and say this but they always it felt very like you, you killed your mom in birth so I treat you horribly now like I did get that whole that whole feeling even if it wasn't clearly stated. I did feel, I did wonder how everyone felt about having the dysfunction not really get settled. Like, obviously, at the end, Ned is still with his dad. Linda leaves, but I don't know that that solves anything for anything anybody besides herself. Well, I think that's the realization, right? Is that she's been anti her family this whole time. And, like, she suddenly realizes that she has to get out. Yeah. Or else it just won't stop, right? Like, she... And she tries to take Ned with her, but she knows that, like, she can't save them if, like, they don't want to be saved. So I actually really liked that it wasn't resolved because, like, this kind of dysfunction rarely is, right? Like, it doesn't really neatly fit into a happy ending narrative because you're going to be dealing with that your whole life. And And that's another thing about the... The, the normally the Hays Code stuff is like normally it doesn't end or it always ends super happily like everything that gets tied on if if somebody ever did something bad it ends with blah 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 and that's it's interesting but it's also not really satisfying to the entire plot I guess I don't know my two favorite characters in this are the Potters Johnny's <laughs> friends and Oh, sorry. I messed up my own joke. I was going to call them the Porters. Uh, oh, I mean Potter. <laughs> that was kind of a cute little thing. I th- I did feel that their scenes in the film were very comedic, like when they show up to the party and Mr. Potter's shoe g- gets caught in his galosh um, and not knowing how to deal with that. But they seemed like folks I would actually want to be friends with. Like, I I really want to be on the, like, Nick and Susan, like, Johnny and maybe Elise um, club. I just really enjoyed them. I would love to know... I would have also watched the adventures of, like, Johnny, Nick, and Susan, like, before this movie, where they just, like, were being cute friends and, like, hanging out together. What we're really saying about this film is that it should be a trilogy of films. <laughs> in some ways they had more chemistry than Johnny and Linda in this movie like you get the impression that they are a couple who are still like deeply in love with each other and like they have adventures right like the whole where they just leave the party to start exploring the house because yeah I found that really charming the way that when Johnny says that he's engaged at the beginning of the movie they like sit literally sit on him on the couch to get him to like spill the beans like they're just they're adorable, and yeah, I mean, it's kind of sad that they are relegated to the side characters. The whole time I was watching this, I kept thinking about another scene from another movie that displays this very kind of easy relationship that's in conflict with the main story, and it illustrates the problem 
with what's happening with with the wealthier people. It's it's actually from Meet John Doe, which oh, okay. comes a few years later, and it's Gary Cooper, and it's when he meets one of his fellow homeless friends. I'm trying to remember the scene, Barbara Stanwyck is the 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 other lead, and she gets to see that easy interaction that he has. And realizes that they are from different worlds, and his world might be better. And that's that's the very same energy in this. I have a feeling that this is the kind. This is a scene that happens fairly often, and it it's similar to it's similar to uh, it happened one night is the the ultimate screwball comedy movie, and that's Claudette Colbert's character seeing over time that Clark's Clark Gable's world is better than the than the world she knows. And it's kind of that it's very much a trope in these kinds of movies that the upper class character, usually the woman, sees that the the man's world is a freer, better, happier world. Yeah, because the the richer family members are also stuffy with each other. The party that they have is really stuffy. Linda has this idea that she wants to throw this intimate gathering with um, the their you know their siblings, and I got the impression that the party would would literally just be like the three siblings and Johnny and Susan and Nick, and that would be that would be a lot of fun. But I. And we see a version of that, but obviously Julia doesn't fit in with that with that group. And the scene that you were talking about, Tessa, where they basically like throw themselves on Johnny to find out like more information about his plans is so portrays such an intimacy that the people in the Seton family do not interact with each other that way at all. And I basically just agree with everything you just said. Yeah, they have to like go to church to tell their father important things because he won't make a scene <laughs> yeah. in the middle of church. We also, so we're watching season two of Sense8 right now. And I bring that up because the thing I liked least about this movie is that Ned doesn't go with them, right? He's like, I can't leave. Well, first of all, you can. And then like the next day or two days later, we see uh, the scene with uh, Danny, who's you know, the third person in Leto's thruple has that very same, has the actual confrontation that you can imagine between Ned and his dad. Like, if you go with them, you're disowned. And I, I feel like we got, we were cheated of that moment, but then I saw it in Sense8, so it was fine. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not up to that episode in Sense8 yet. Well, I didn't, I mean, I'm not telling you what no, happened. No, 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 I, I, you did not spoil <laughs> anything for me. Um, so, but now I'm looking forward to that. Honestly, it kind of reminded me of the end of Sabrina a little bit, like Audrey Hepburn one, because that also has a happy ending on a boat. Yeah. And it's kind of got like this fun little like joke with the happy ending. I wouldn't be representing pod rates properly if I didn't include a thirst section for each of these films. On pod rates, we always have our Altair water thirst quencher. I've been, as, as Matt would say, I've been feeling a little parched while we've been chatting here. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, who are we thirsting for in this episode? Um, I'm going to start with Tessa. I actually really liked Katherine Hepburn. I mean, she's she's always great. But, like, her, she, her in that dress I really liked. But that moment after the party where she goes to see the Potters in that just ridiculous hat and overcoat combo, like... 
she just looks so cozy and cute. Like, I just like want to wrap her in a blanket and tell her everything's going to be okay. It kind of reminds me, even though it's a different outfit, like when she's in the Philadelphia story and she's in the library with that like hat on and she's just like really in a different outfit than she is for the rest of the movie. Like it's just really comfortable. What about you, Andy? Doris Nolan. <laughs> yep, that's, that, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> she's got some really cool hairstyles in this. I will say that. And some really good hats. What about you, Sam? So I am not a fan of Katherine Hepburn. I never have been. I My first Katherine Hepburn movie was Desk Set. I've seen several since then. I am much more of a fan of actors from this time period, like Myrna Lloyd, Jean Arthur, Barbara Stanwyck. So my, my, but my comment in this category is, as I was, I was trying to tell Tessa, and, and I couldn't say it right when we were watching the movie, but like I could not pull off either of the dresses they're wearing in the second half of the movie during the party scene, but I will always prefer shiny to matte. That's the differentiation there. Like the shiny dress is always going to be the thing. You were, you really liked Doris Nolan in that dress. I did. I did. I mean, I don't really like her. I like the dress. Let's be very clear about this. Yeah, I don't love Julia either, but I am literally obsessed with the shiny silver New Year's Eve dress. Like, I want to wear this dress. I want to be this dress. I feel like I need to. <laughs> it's just so pretty. This is where I come in and say, my prom dress was like a poofy, shiny silver dress. And like, oh, nice. Yeah, we can so, say it's holiday inspired. Exactly. I like shiny things as well. Julia was hot, even though I don't think I would like her personally. <laughs> you would like vacation her. Yes, I like think if that's, you only yeah, met her on vacation, yes. like if you only met her on a cruise, yeah, whatever, whatever, and never saw her again, you'd yeah. never know she was a bad person. Yeah, that is so true. I'm like, what did Johnny see on that trip? I want to know. This is like Greece. If Sandy transferred to the school and she was actually terrible, <laughs> yeah, I, I, this, is, I this just, is what that is. I just showed my dad Greece for the first time because he had never seen it. We watched it literally a week ago today, and so that is a very timely reference for me, so thank you. We should have your dad on the podcast to talk about <laughs> his experience watching Grease. I will sum it up for you. He said, I love everything John Travolta is doing in this movie. <laughs> he was like, he's so great. So segment two, we're covering the 1961 film 123, directed by Billy Wilder. Starring James Cagney as C.R. McNamara and Horst, I can never pronounce this man's name, apologies, Horst Buchholz, who I watched, who was in something my dad was watching the other day that I was like, oh, it's Otto, as Otto Ludwig Piffle. And I want to say that I recently watched a different Billy Wilder film recently, and he had another character named Otto Ludwig something or other, so I thought that was funny he used that person middle name twice. I forget what movie it is. I will look it up eventually. Pamela Tiffin as Scarlett Hazeltine and Arlene Francis as Phyllis McNamara. There's also um, Scarlett's dad's in the movie and then um, McNamara's secretary and... I don't know. Ingeborg. What... Yes, and his secretary, Freulein... 
Fräulein um, Ingeborg and Schlemmer, who I always forget, like, what kind of role he is. He's kind of like his administrative assistant. C.R. McNamara will do anything to get a promotion within the Coca-Cola company, including look looking after boss W.P. I love that everyone's name in this film is, like, two letters. Um, W.P. <laughs> Hazeltine's rebellious teenage daughter, Scarlett. When Scarlett visits Berlin, where CR is stationed, she reveals that she is married to a communist named Otto Piffel, and CR recognizes that Otto's anti-establishment stance will clash with his boss's own political views, possibly jeopardizing his promotion. I I just want to quickly say, and and Andy is from a different region, a sub-region of the region in play, but I and so I don't know. But Andy, there are so many Southernisms in this movie, and it's it's like they did it. They did the thing. Good job. I mean, Scarlet is named after yeah. Scarlet O'Hara. They make a right? joke I mean, about because, that in the movie. They say, they, yeah, they reference. I mean, Tara. it's just, yeah, it's great. Yeah, the constant references to General Sherman's little party, or whatever. yeah, it's, it's such a dark joke. But the whole at the wedding reception, we can cross the German flag with the Confederate flag. Yeah. And I was just like, that's a horrifying <laughs> image. I mean, this is this is a dark, dark movie, and I, I fully loved it. I was fully on board. Yes, this is so much fun. Yeah, and so I, I made a note about this a little bit later on, but like the Safdie brothers saw this, right? I don't know if I've ever seen a Safety Brothers. Like, like to me, this things. is Uncut Gems. Oh, so I haven't seen mm. Uncut Gems yet. Like it's it's the the frantic pace and and Cagney's delivery. It's just it it doesn't let it doesn't let up. And I mean, I don't know that Billy Wilder's gonna make a movie like Uncut Gems. I'm just saying, <laughs> it's hard not to see this and go, I have not been this exhausted at the end of a movie since uncut gems but unlike uncut gems i can still get up and do something now before we move on to more of the plot did you have any thoughts on specific characters that you liked or just the film in general honestly james cagney is wonderful in this film which is not something i would have said about james cagney before watching this film i mean i don't dislike him it's just not something I would have been like, oh, yeah, that's James Cagney. But he's playing out of type, and he's just nailing the pacing of yeah. this, like, frenetic energy. Like, he's given a lot to do in this film, and you just feel like you feel just as stressed out as he is, like, as you're going through this and, like, trying to, like, figure out what to do next and, like, how are you going to solve this problem? And, like, I, I just – he does such a great job. He just rises to the occasion of this film. I feel like every time – somebody says refers to Jimmy Cagney's type or acting against type you can hear a scream emitting from his grave because Jimmy Cagney's a song and dance man right who got typecast as a gangster I don't has anybody seen Yankee Doodle Dandy no I might have been able to I might might have been able to I might have but I don't remember so it's like back on my list it is the it is one of the original AFI top 100 movies. It is at the bottom of the list. It's about a lot of things, but the cuckoo clock is a reference to Yankee Doodle Dandy. I oh, will not for believe sure. otherwise. No, I don't like because they could have chosen. Yeah, they could have chosen other songs, but I felt like that was a direct reference to that. And and I also thought the other thing that really struck me about the South that I loved was the Yankee 
when when she <laughs> when when Scarlet refers to Yankees, and because she's a Southerner, she's thinking about somebody like you, Elise. Yes. But when, which is how I learned the term Yankee, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't until I listened to Don Henley a lot that I realized that Yankee is outside of this country, referring to anyone from this country right. whereas within the country it means something specific and i really like that joke i loved that joke too though i would go further as saying she was not talking about me she was specifically talking about the baseball team it was very um <laughs> she ha- had no concept of yankee as like a even i don't even know if she meant like northerners i feel like it was very like i live in atlanta we like the braves here we hate the yankees like it felt very baseball related to me but i don't know what the teams I don't, were that's in what a yankee would say <laughs> no i heard it and i was I, like nope I, that's see, not what that is I, at all so i grew up in a mets household so it's just a different thing one of the things i want to talk about was how accurate accurately this movie portrays uh coca-cola oh yes i would love to hear that because I this is this is something I I recently learned though. But Coca Cola, first of all, their entire business at this point in time, they did not give the recipe to the syrup out. They shipped the syrup mm-hmm. in giant tankers to whatever country. And Coca Cola was so important to Germany pre World War II that the Nazis basically made ways to get around to get around the the uh, banishments because you do not deny the german soldiers coca-cola like that would have been a bad idea so there are ways to get around the way business was done specifically to give you know soldiers coca-cola to to make that a, a thing so the idea that uh you have all these loyal german workers working at the coca-cola plant is just so very realistic. But apparently it got to a point where some of the German POWs that Americans captured, you know, the Americans would would give their prisoners of war some Coca-Cola. And, you know, to to Germans, it was like a taste of home. It was like, oh, what are you doing with with our German beer? This is great. Thank you so much. You've given us, you know, a taste of, of home. And they, Germans did not know it was an American beverage. Well, and and the what's his name McNamara, the character played by James Cagney, like at the beginning of the movie, he says like we've outpaced the sale of beer. But a- anyway, it's 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 just that that they also, you know, when they were trying to deal with the Russians, literally talking about uh, the Russian scientists trying to make Coca Cola, which is a thing that happened. Yeah, like, I had heard that. Like, like the secret recipe is secret for a reason. It is very funny. You know, uh, I, I will I will go on the record as saying Coke is better than Pepsi. Which there's a joke about that at the end of the film. Within Coca-Cola, there has been a... It was settled a long time ago, but there was a debate between essentially two divisions. Uh, and of course, there was a lot of legal stuff. But so Coca-Cola is based in Atlanta. Well, right before the end of the 19th century, it was bottled for the first time in the city I grew up in, Chattanooga. Like, the first bottling plant is not far from my house that I grew up in. And that was a big conflict, as I said, because there were competing discussions that early about the business model. Should it always be shipping syrup done via fountain? And then it was, 
No, we can can it distribute. Well, no, we can't do that everywhere, so we're going to have to ship the syrup and can or bottle it. And so that became, you know, big points of distribution contention. And so as as accurate as this movie is, that really captures if you remember Cagney's character is talking about how we should move beyond the 6 pack to the 9 pack or the 12 pack and I imagine even during this, you know, several years or several decades removed from the initial conflict that that is not a settled thing. There are probably some people who are still very animus to that and I thought that was interesting. By the way, working for Pepsi would have meant living in New York City at this point. It did not move to North Carolina until much later. And by the way, the Braves moved to Atlanta in 66. Oh, so, so it oh, I'm telling you, thank you. That was a that was a as somebody who's lived in the South all my life, that was a northern dig. 100%. I mean, I don't doubt it. I just as a person from the north, I was like, "Oh, it's a baseball thing." But like, what else? <laughs> But I just thought it was really funny because I like, when it comes to American soft drinks, I do like Pepsi better. My dad drank Pepsi. He would have rather lived in New York than Atlanta. So, I mean, like, going to (laughs) Pepsi wouldn't have been a terrible thing. Come on, people. But that also brings up the fact, which international Coca-Cola is better than American Coca-Cola? The answer is all of them, probably. But Mexican, specifically, I think, for me. Yes. Also good. So this 100%. is my. But I've I've had German Coca Cola. It's great. I prefer uh, the Coke Fanta mix. So just a real quick thing. These are my soda rankings. <clears throat> if these are the only four sodas that exist, Diet Pepsi is at the bottom, and then regular Coke, and then regular Pepsi, and then Diet Coke is the best one. Oh, nope. Diet Coke's the Ugh. best one. Nope. What were you gonna? I I thought we were gonna have a Dr Pepper person in the uh, house here. I oh thought, no! I thought I'm that's only, what we were leading to. I loved I love Dr Pepper diet and regular. This was only about colas. It was my cola breakdown. Justice for Dr Pepper. So, Dr Pepper is wonderful as an indie brand. <laughs> so one two three is a movie we all watched. This movie is very political. There's a lot of references to what was going on in West and East Berlin post-World War II. Do you, did you feel, how did you feel about these references? Did you get a lot of it? Do you find the capitalism versus communism conversation still relevant? So here, here, here's a few things. One, I, I compared this movie to Who Framed Roger Rabbit uh, when I was talking about Ex- it with Sarah. Excellent film. The way I compared it was... In Roger Rabbit, you can see the machinations working where a Warner Brothers character, animated character, says something, and then a Disney animated character says something. There has to be 100% parity, equality, between how many lines they get. And for this, it's very clear if you say something critical about capitalism, you need to say 17 things positive about capitalism. And I, I don't blame Billy Wilder, considering what was going on with Huack and, and all that at the time this was being made. I think it it's it's a very relevant thing, but I also think that uh, it was very purposely um, political without being uh, controversial because, you know, terrified of uh, the Hollywood monsters. Other than that, I just want to say necking with the Stevenson Democrat is one of the funniest things I have I have heard in a very long time. And I, I laughed so hard at that. <laughs> 
I love uh, Mac, Mrs. McNamara's oh, yeah. humor. It's just the best in this. Yeah, She's Phyllis, one of the best characters. Phyllis rules. I think this film would be really difficult for someone to follow if they weren't familiar with the history of Germany post-World War II. Like, if that's not something that you've studied, I feel like that would be... It would be hard. There's a lot of very topical references in this film. But if you are familiar with it, it's extremely funny. One of the funniest lines is at the beginning of the film when you have uh, McNamara's voiceover and he says, so this will give you an idea of what kind of people we're dealing with here. And that was, it was just so funny. Like, and the idea that this film engages with the, the fact that West Berlin is controlled by the U S but the people who work there are almost all former Nazis and the people who live in East Berlin, like the fact that they're dedicated to communism, but then you get the joke about the hotel, which keeps changing its name, depending on who's in charge at the time. Like all of that is extremely funny. If you, if you know the names and places it makes it works though though we sent uh they sent you some crappy cigars that's okay we sent them crappy rockets <laughs> yeah that and, was uh, <laughs> that that line the uh i have to tell you i'm part of the secret service i've been sent to to watch you <laughs> but i vote yes <laughs> the, yeah that uh the oh yes for american missiles there's one button but for soviet missiles there's two buttons <laughs> Yeah, there's, like, some, there's some good stuff in this. One of the darkest jokes in this is still his assistant say, like when he realizes his assistant used to be in the SS and it's because he and the reporter like recognize each other. He was his and commanding then his officer. assistant is like, I was only a pastry cook. I made really bad pastries. Like it's such a dark joke considering the subject matter. And we, you can argue that it's almost too dark of a joke because if you're in the SS, you deserve a lot more than this person got. Yeah, for but sure. the idea is, is that everybody in Berlin was responsible for what happened. And so like, yeah. So about a week or two ago, maybe just in the last week, your co-host, Matt, watched Hedwig and the Angry Inch for the first time. And I have scene like that movie uh and of course the musical it's based on and read lots of things from this time period that talk about the crossing from east to west and it is not something that one should laugh at it's not a joke it's and and so this i did not like this like I like the movie overall, but I didn't appreciate the jokes about crossing because it struck me like the great dictator. It it struck me as this will not age well. The, these jokes are not good. Like you're trying to bring up some of the issues regarding something very serious and trying to do it through humor and it, this is not that. I, I absolutely believe you can do that, but this isn't it. So it, it bothered me. I mean, I can take it in good fun and not be so serious about it, but it was funny thinking about uh, Matt talking about how Hedwig has stayed with him, and this is not what he was referring to. But I, it just made me think about that, and I was like, yeah, this is... Hedwig has to have like surgery that, that maims her to get out of East Berlin. So I, I just, I don't know. And I was constantly worried for the secretary the whole time 
because I know it's a joke. I know we're not going here, but like, he's trafficking her. <laughs> Except he doesn't. I don't know. I, 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 yeah, I get the jokes. They're just not funny. I mean, I think that that is the one pr- potential criticism of this film is that there it does touch on some subject matter that some people might say you shouldn't joke about. So there, there were a couple times where the humor made me a little uncomfortable, but maybe not as much as you. Well, we had we had an experience recently, and I'm not going to go into it, and I'm not going to talk about the subject matter, but I recently saw somebody make a joke about something you supposedly can't joke about, and you actually, it turns out you can. You can joke about anything. It's just not easy. That's fair. I think for me, part, part of it is, you know, I have such nostalgia for this film, so I think a lot of those things, um, I don't necessarily feel that they are not jokeable because I've seen this so many times. Um, But I also feel like no one... I don't think McNamara comes off, like, as a good person at all. And I think that they're... No. And I think that helps me because I think he's the one getting made fun of the most. Um, And that... Or capitalism is the one getting made fun of the most. So I, I do feel... In a way that this, it basically is a commentary to me on how capitalism, like, we all become leeches on it and have to use all these things to our advantage and the, because otherwise we will be poor and not have food or whatever. The idea that he would be finished after being in a top position for so long and then losing that position and then he'd be like, the kids will starve. Dude, you've 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 been working for this company for how long, and and you you don't have enough of a like like enough of a nest egg, enough of uh gravitas to, to carry you to some to something else like that. Well, he just spent it all on auto. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, I did like really like kind of the twist of this film because this film also emphasizes that capitalism promotes this idea that you can work your way up the system, but really the power only exists within a certain group of families or a certain group of people because the idea is that he's working so hard like he gives up so much in this movie to impress his boss only to have the person that he literally made be be promoted over him because he's now part of the family right like they're always going to look after their own rather than look after you and I thought that was really clever I mean I'm happy that he got to like go back to Atlanta because that's what his wife wanted and I want everything that his wife wants although she'd probably have preferred her husband not cheat on her with all of his secretaries it is never confirmed right that that's one of the the clever Hayes code thing that I, I really liked was that like every time he's about to molest his secretary in some way someone comes in the room or um the other Hays Code thing that was like uh, against premarital sex. So it's like, oh, she's pregnant. Well, yeah, of course, because yeah, they're married. Yeah, they've been married six it's... weeks. So. She's going to have puppies is also <laughs> one of my favorite lines. I like often will sing like pregnant, schwana, schwana, pregnant. Like it's just like some, sorry. Apologies to everyone who had to hear me sing that just now. But like there's a lot of things in this movie that just like I think about regularly. <laughs> Like, I just, the idea that the kid wanted to bring his roller skates to Venice was very silly. There was just a lot of silly little things, like... <laughs> yeah, and I brought my snorkel, too. <laughs> this this oftentimes felt like a movie, like, I almost expected Mel Brooks to be in a scene. Um, yeah, that's fair. 
the the cuckoo clock wrapped in a Wall Street Journal. Yeah, every detail of this film is really yeah. impeccably done. Like, there's so much attention to like even the smallest yeah. visual gags. I love when he accidentally almost shows his future his mother-in-law the party membership. Ooh, wrong party, and he like puts yeah. it away. Um, <laughs> one thing I did want to talk about. Uh, I don't know if because this movie was so fast-paced. I always watch it with the subtitles on. Um, because there is a lot of stuff you can miss. But one thing I find interesting is that, except for when McNamara and, like, Slemmer were, like, talking or um, Ingeborg were talking, the other German parts of this movie did not have subtitles. But because of the context of what we were watching on the screen and some of the words that do sound similar in English, like propaganda or cuckoo clock, like, things like that, I... It didn't feel like sometimes when you watch a film and there's someone speaking in another in a language other than English, it feels like they're othering that group by having us not pay attention or not understand what they're saying. And I don't think that this movie felt that way for me. Um, It was it was very easy from if you were paying attention from context to know what was being said, even if you didn't know the exact translations. And I thought that really worked. And I think, like you said, that's really purposeful because it's it's funny the way you can follow the same conversations that are happening in German yeah. as they are in English. Like the idea that both of these sides are having the same conversations, that they're both so paranoid about each other, but they're actually closer yeah. to each other than not. I think that that's incredibly funny. And I think it's funnier when you don't understand completely what they're saying, but you catch those familiar words in the conversation. Otto was like, if I have to hear the itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini one more time. The banana song was in German in this one. How is that song popular? (laughs) That song's also in Sabrina, but I loved they were singing it in German. I do want to say I watched the Blu-ray of this film and I had watched it before because this movie is not streaming. Um, even for rent or purchase, and that Blu-ray looked amazing. My only complaints is that the subtitles were, like, all in white, so with not much of an outline, so it was a little hard, but it just looked really crisp. Well, Andy, since you're so eager, who is your, uh, who are you thirsting for in this film? Okay, okay, all I'm gonna say is ring-a-ding-ding, like. (laughs) (laughs) That's valid. The, the, I the, agree. Mine was also Ingeborg. Right. The, the the twerking was just. <laughs> I mean that 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 was twerking. That booty don't yeah. quit. I mean, I know it's the obvious choice, but she is really hot in this, and the fact that she's like in the like her slip with the overcoat on at the end, like that's really cute. Like she looked good. Sometimes the obvious choice is the correct choice. It's true. But the, the polka dot, the, the polka dot slip, the dress was really good. I liked it a lot. I hope she got another one because this one got ruined. I will just say that as Ingeborg is is probably my top also, but I just love how hot Scarlett and Otto are for each other. Like, it's really charming and cute, And but I also love how they basically have, like, she has no idea what he's talking about, and I just... I also like that too, though. She's like so into him and she's like trying to understand, but like completely misunderstanding him. Like, yeah. I, well, I mean, earlier when she talks about meeting him, she basically says, like, he called me all these horrible things. So naturally, I fell in love with him. <laughs> I just was like, 
uh, proves that horniness can overcome. Oh, totally. Ideological <laughs> differences. Well, James, <laughs> nice pun, Tessa. James, nice James pun. Carville uh, proves that, doesn't it? I feel very uncomfortable discussing James Carville and his wife because I don't understand it. So I don't know that I... It, but yes, I guess they do prove that. It's just weird. Pass. Yeah. <laughs> I should have just said that. One of my friends asked me if I was thinking of the Cindy Lauper song Time After Time when I was watching the movie Time After Time. And I said no, because I knew of this movie before I knew of the song. So... I'm a little upset that this movie came out several years before the song came out because I feel like these things could have gone together. Okay. All right. Hold on. Stop. Just for a second. So Tessa and I have an issue with Time After Time, the song. It's more of a disagreement than an issue. I have feelings about it as well. Well, it's an issue because it's an issue because I thought you were wrong. But hold on. Okay. This is an episode of Andy's Preconceived Misconceptions that doesn't involve Andy at all. Sam's Uh, Preconceived Misconceptions. Well, you'd be wrong. It's not a misconception. I can't wait to hear what this is and then weigh in on it. The the issue is, is it the song Time After Time? Is it about the end of a relationship or is it I'll Stand By You, basically? I believe it's about the end of a relationship and Tessa believes it is not. It is a statement of devotion, which actually doesn't contradict with what I said. But so here's the thing. Cindy Lauper co-wrote Time After Time with Rob Hyman. And guess what? Rob Hyman believes it is about the end of a relationship. And Cindy Lauper believes it's about persevering. So the actual writers of the song have the exact same debate we do, which means we're both right. <laughs> I think I'm also right in saying that I hate the song Time After Time by Cindy Lauper. No, you are in fact not right. You are wrong. You're not supposed to contradict your guest, but I'm doing I'm it. the host. You can contradict me. Also, well, I you're was wrong. just going to do like, I'm a, I'm the host now, um, dot meme or whatever. I don't like Cindy Lauper, so. I like Cindy Lauper as a person. Yeah, yeah, but... Um... She I also confused on, her just now with on, Olivia Newton-John in my head. I also feel like, Andy, you need to start Googling people before you just say opinions on them because you don't know who anyone is. <laughs> no. No, no. She she did that other song, the, the, the one that's not Olivia Newton-John. Um, Girls just want to have fun? Yeah, that one. That one. I, I also want to point out that not only... Does this movie, Time After Time, not feature the Cindy Lauper song, Time After Time? It also does not feature the star of the Girls Just Want to Have Fun music video, Captain Lou Albano. Now I'm trying to imagine the song, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, as sung by Olivia Newton-John. What would have that even been like? Olivia, <laughs> Olivia Newton-John's <laughs> Rest in Peace, although we don't say that as Jewish folks um we say may her memory be a blessing is the her passing is why we watched Greece the other day before before we actually do that because i have a, a heart out at 130 and i i'm i'm an hour behind at least oh that, okay that's where that's where the 130 i was very from. confused <laughs> yes 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 this is this is what i wanted to say because i was really excited about this i didn't get the malcolm mcdowell thirst train beforehand 
I do now. I will copy and paste that into the thirst section. Yeah, thank you. Um, For yes, because yeah. I, I did not get it. I do now. And also, but Mary Steenburgen still wins because holy crap. Other than that, this was a terrifying watch uh, as a child, and I didn't really watch it <laughs> closely this time. So this all works out. Thank you very much. I love you all. Uh, good luck and good night. And thank you for one, two, three, Elise. It is going to be one of my Blu-ray purchases soon. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Seriously. Andy was abducted by aliens and could not join us for the discussion of time after time. Andy was ripped by Jack the Ripper, a time-traveling Jack the Ripper, and cannot be part of this podcast. I like that one. It's a little dark. Andy was kidnapped by a time-traveling H.D. Wells and cannot be part of this Time After Time podcast. Andy was unfortunately a... (laughs) Hold on. I think I've got this. Hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Okay. Andy, unfortunately, was a collateral damage victim in the latest plot by Sideshow Bob and Sideshow Mel, voiced by... Kelsey Grammer and David Hyde Pierce, respectively. Little known fact, David Hyde Pierce is based on Malcolm McDowell's performance of H.G. Wells in the 1979 movie Time After Time! You did it! (laughs) Our third movie is the 1979 film Time After Time, directed by Nicholas Meyer. It stars Malcolm McDowell as H.G. Wells, Mary Steenburgen as Amy Robbins, and David Warner as John Leslie Stevenson slash, spoiler alert, Jack the Ripper. Sam, did you have any comments on any other uh, people I, that popped up in I this I did. Film? It's, that is the first note I made on our notes document, <laughs> and then I saw much later that you oh, mentioned it. we could do it, it. now. No, no, I know. Yeah, but to me, the greatest casting coup in this movie is when H.G. Wells steps out of his time machine in San Francisco, who is pointing at him but one young Corey Feldman. It is a testament to me, the person who often doesn't recognize people. But I was like, oh, that's Corey Feldman. And then I looked it up, and it was. But when I looked it up on IMDb, I further discovered that Mr. Friendly himself, Lost's own MC Ganey, was one of the 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 police officers, the Bobby. Oh, I didn't catch that. At the beginning of the film. And I'm like, you are, wow. Bes- besides the Corey Feldman part, which I also realized, but also I normally, I always point people out and things. I feel like I'm at this point known for that. So it's not as exciting. But the second one that was really exciting to me is one of the sex workers that John Leslie Stevenson murders in the present, 1979, was Ann Graff's mom, Amber Valone, from My So-Called Life. And I always feel bad because I have to look up her name, but it's Patty Darbinville. And she just looks so young and doing her, like, New York accent that she does and... It was exciting to see her. Oh, she's the one in the in her yeah. apartment. Yes, yes. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. I was like trying to remember. Yeah, that's definitely Is her. it it's it's funny when actors do stuff in movies from before we were born. So, I just want to start off by saying that Nicholas Meyer directed three movies that I absolutely love. 
this one, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, and Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country, which obviously we, you both have covered on this podcast. So it's like, I'm completing the trilogy here. And Sam watched all three of those movies for the first time this year. I, I also saw the movie that was based on this movie, Star Trek IV, yes. the whale <laughs> yes. one. The one with whales. So I didn't... Kn- yeah. Which which he is a writer on. Yeah, he's a writer on. He didn't direct it because Leonard Nimoy directed it, but it does have a remarkably similar oh, storyline. Totally, uh, Not that I'm complaining. I think no, both movies totally are fine. No, it's totally fine. Yeah. I mean, I could complain that Picard season two has the same storyline. <laughs> I think we can all complain about that. I know you guys didn't finish exactly. it, right? But like, I almost didn't want to finish it. That's a whole other conversation. I do think that... I would, if I were you and had not finished Picard, I would just to maybe watch season three of Picard because that seems more like it's going to be like, we got the gang back together, but hopefully we don't. I know that this show is just going to get my hopes up a third time, so I'm just resigned to, to that. What is this? Star Wars? Come on, Star, Star Trek people. You're supposed to deliver quality product. Having your <laughs> hopes and dreams dashed, that's really kind of our jam. You know what? At least we have Strange New Worlds, which I absolutely which love. Which is wonderful. Pike's Peak, y'all. <laughs> I didn't know this until earlier today. Time After Time was based on a novel that actually also came out in 1979. So this feels like a really, unless I misread, this feels like a really quick turnaround of like Move, uh, book to that happens though sometimes it does Jaws I think is an example of that too and I will fully admit that I put this in here for Sam who I very much mm-hmm. enjoy listening to talk about time travel am I am I supposed to say something about time travel <laughs> now am I is is this is this my cue I mean you responded I perfectly listen okay I have a I have a real problem and I'm gonna call party foul on the time travel in this movie because because if he removes her from the timeline she can't be murdered that's not how time travel works see i always thought it was a like a bill and ted thing like it happened but it did happen like it showed that they did go back well okay however in the in the back to the future which was which obviously hasn't come out yet but Back to the Future became the de facto loop theory of time travel guidebook, I guess. So again, this is before that. But it won't have happened because she's been removed from the timeline. The future would never know that that's happened. Well, it's not actually her, though. Remember, her friend is the one who actually gets murdered. Didn't it say in the newspaper that Amy? Yeah, Robbins but they was like murdered? mistook it for her. Like she was she, so bad. Yeah, right. She said, like, okay. Yeah. So. Yeah, they said the newspaper. Which, right. by the way, that's wrong. the most horrifying scene in this is when the police show up and the, you just see the hand on the floor. Mm-hmm. Like, oh. So yeah, I mean, like, I hadn't gone back to think about that because we talked about it at the time that it happened, and adding that piece of knowledge at the end it totally makes sense it's interesting that's another time travel trope is misunderstanding something and then basing your actions off of it that's a that's a fun one i was really excited when time after time got a shout out in avengers endgame as one of the time travel films that they were like going talking about and like roadies like says time after time and i I am so surprised, despite apparently having watched part of it, because I remembered the skylight. That's what got me. 
I know I've seen the beginning of this movie because of the skylight. So despite the fact that I've seen part of it, I had no idea this movie existed. And it's sad because it's it was so much fun. You are correct that I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I'm glad. Before we get into it, I realized I forgot to give the summary of this film. So writer H.G. Wells pursues Jack the Ripper to modern day 1979 San Francisco after the infamous serial killer steals his time machine to escape from the 19th century. That is such a good idea for a movie, by the way. I know. I think it's genius. It was. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with uh, come you Come on, here. Tessa. Get I with mean, it. You know that my first thoughts on the opening <laughs> credits are this film is going to be extra and I'm here for it. <laughs> I love how, like, foggy they made the opening. Like, it was very, like, industrial and, like, there's machinery things happening at buildings around where we are. So we have to make it all, like... I I like, and, and Tessa was the one who observed this, I like that he took the time to bedazzle the time machine. Oh, yeah. That time machine is snazzy. <laughs> like, this man he, knows fashion. Yeah. Kai. He wasn't just going to let this time machine be like a box like it is in Primer. Like, Hashtag he was going to make aesthetic. it look awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the second time we brought up Primer in two days. Oh, God. It almost felt like it was like like Star Trek, like how it was just like... You know, I went to um, a Star Trek set tour recently, and they said that the way that they got they brought the original series and the way they got the look for the um, the transporter. I almost couldn't come up with that word was something about like a glass of water and like they do something with the camera. And I just it felt very similar to that. I don't really know the specifics, but it sounded really well, it's funny cool. because this didn't make it into the, the Sam watches Star Trek episode about where no one has gone before, but that's actually how they did the special effects for like the end of the universe stuff is they were actually using Christmas lights in water, like the reflection of the lights in water. Oh, that's interesting. Fun fact. Uh, on this podcast, we call think? those mumble Mumble fact. Get it right. What did you think of the characters in this, in this film? I love that H.G. Wells is David Hyde Pierce as Niles Crane. He looks like him. He acts like him. He runs like him. It is <laughs> it is uncanny. It is great. It it and now in my mind, H.G. Wells and Niles Crane are the same person. They are historical doppelgangers. And I do not know how I Vidi Horror Show himself is part of this, but he is because that's Malcolm McDowell. What the absolute, and I'm sorry, Tessa, fuck. <laughs> yeah, wow. I, I definitely thought that too. Once you pointed it out, I was like, it is uncanny, <laughs> the resemblance. I've only watched two seasons of Frasier, but I could see it. I mean, I thought it was really, he was really good in this role. I thought he was funny. Like, he was charming at the same time. He perfectly yeah. balances the intellectualism of Wells with the, like, fish out of water type of storytelling. He's very funny. I almost felt like it subverted the fish out of water trope a little bit because being someone who is so interested in science and politics and the way that people act 
I mean, H.G. Wells is clearly ready for anything. Like, he... So I felt like he just kind of accepted what he was being seen, what he was being shown. Like, it took him a minute to get acclimated to, like, certain things, but he was just, like, knew he was, you know, he knew he was in the future. He knew there would be things he didn't understand. So it was, like, it was fun to watch him figure it out, but not, it wasn't, like, I was glad that wasn't the whole movie. You know, that was exactly my take on this, but apparently this is one of Tessa's time travel pet peeves it's not really a pet peeve i just think that if you were to go to the future not if you get went to the past but if you were to go to the future especially that far into the future i would think that the future would be incomprehensible to most people because like you just wouldn't be able to understand what was happening around you because People, there's been so many paradigm shifts in our society since H.G. Wells lived that I agree with you. I think that it works in this movie because he's so open to the idea, but it would just be like very difficult for someone who to make that jump. Right. Even just from like a perceptive, like would they even be able to perceive what was happening around them? Would they be able to understand it? That's, Yeah. I can't imagine it working with any other character. Well, Jack the um, Ripper seems to have yeah, an easy I, time with it, but that's for another explained in the movie very good reason, which is like San Francisco 1979 is his crime jam. Like he's ready. Yeah, I was kind of amazed at how quickly he acclimated to the 70s and it kind of goes into the same thing I just said, but it actually does make sense for him because he's probably spent his whole life learning how to blend in and seem like harmless and normal. And so like it would make sense that he's kind of more of a chameleon character than Wells, like he knows how to like Yeah. Is, is Jack the Ripper like Villanelle? Yeah, I think so. I think that's what we're supposed to get from this Ooh. movie. Is that he yeah, he knows how to adapt to these different situations and how to blend in, just how to, just in order to protect himself. That makes sense because he does it every single day of his life. Like he's just as much of a stranger in what Victorian you, London yeah. as he is in 1979 San Francisco. What did you think of Amy? Oh my god, I loved Amy. She was so cute, and I love. So I was telling Sam this as we were watching it. There is a specific genre of time travel movie where and it's almost always a man time traveling and a woman that he meets in the future or whatever mm-hmm. although I think I've seen it the other way as well where like things are getting more and more obvious that this person there's something wrong with this person or that like something's off about this person but they like roll with it like she does have this moment when he actually tells her about the time travel that she's like no that's like impossible but up until that point, so many things should have sh- like shaken her about him as a person. But she's just like, no, I'm really into this. Like, I'm really into yeah. you. Did they? She really liked his accent. <laughs> In Victorian England, did they kiss like that? Oh yeah, I'm not convinced Malcolm McDowell knows how to kiss. Like, yeah. I don't. I don't even think he was touching her lips. They got married the next year, so clearly he was doing something right. So, I I also want to say regarding Amy, it's. When you retroactively discover something about one of your favorite movies or franchises or whatever, it's it's a good feeling. So just bravo to Robert Zemeckis and his casting director for casting the 
one of the leads in a time travel movie as one of the leads in their time travel movie. I am, of course, talking about Back to the Future 3. Yeah. This like feels like a, like a audition for, for that movie almost. And I love Back to the Future 3. I'm also obsessed with her clothing. Like, I am obsessed with her costuming in this. I just, I love her. She's like this horny, adorable, anxious, charming person. And it's just, I mean, not to like say too many nice things about myself. It just felt really relatable. (laughs) She just was so cute. And like, she didn't know how to like, and they both made them divorce. They're both divorced in this, which was, was kind of interesting. And it just felt very... I don't know. They were just really cute together, even if they didn't kiss right. And she was like so direct with him about what she wanted. Yeah. And like, I, I just really appreciated that where me she too. was just like, do you want me to show you around San Francisco? Like, do you want to go have lunch? Like, she was just very like, this is what I want. Take it or leave it. You know, I believe in women's liberation. <laughs> John Leslie Stevenson's hair was perfection for both time periods. Yeah, I was about to say like he... When he was in his 70s mode, I'm like, yeah, that's a 70s haircut. My like, dad had Wells that does look like a little Victorian gentleman, but like his hair, yeah. John Leslie Stevenson's hair was like my dad's hair. And in, in, I'll just show you like wedding photos from 1975 of my parents when we're done. Really quickly, here's a fun time travel thing. Like in action movies, you never see people go to the bathroom. That was like one of the complaints about the Kiefer Sutherland series 24. Yes, I watched that show. This case. Right. So this is that. I just feel like the next morning when they woke up, before she left, when she was telling him about the door, she handed him deodorant and said, by the way, use this. <laughs> yeah, Sam was very much like, he would not smell he good. He would not smell no, good. he probably wouldn't have. But I, I personally do think about, like, when does everyone shower and get ready and, like, go to the bathroom? That is stuff that I... Not that I need to watch people in TV and movies doing that, but I think about it often. What did you think of, like, the fun, like, Willy Wonka-type tunnel scene we got when it was, like, during the actual time travel and they showed... They basically had audio of, like, all these things that happened throughout history. I really liked it. I mean, this, like you said, it felt like Willy Wonka. It felt like very 70s, the visuals especially. But I liked with the audio that we it, they never let the audio finish. So yeah. there were so many like famous recordings and lines mm-hmm. and songs even. But they were always like you only got like a couple of words before they were cut off. And so like it kind of blends together into almost this like pastiche of like the 20th century up to that point and I I really appreciated that because it didn't come across as like you know like the the pages falling off the calendar or whatever that that a lot of time travel movies do it felt like something that was different and interesting it also made me think that Nicholas Meyer is Jewish which I have since confirmed because he had the state of Israel becoming a thing and then the like Munich like olympics in there and i was like those are real specific things to include in this i did notice that too i didn't make that connection but i did notice that that was like a a thing yeah like the fact that it was israel was mentioned twice was was interesting to me in that it wasn't quite the time travel in voyage home where you see the different heads of the the crew pop up but it was still pretty good 
how did you feel about H.G. Wells finding out that the future is not utopia, this utopian dream that he um, was expecting? I found this actually to be, I mean, it's funny and also sad that, you know, this happens to him, but I actually felt like this film had a lot to say about utopia and a lot to say about violence in the U.S., especially gun violence and yeah. media violence. I mean, like Jack, Jack the Ripper saying did you know you can just walk into a store and buy a gun? Feels like very horrifying. And we, we're, the fact that we're still having these conversations 30 years after this film was released is just like, it's an indictment of our, our society. But I also really liked the way that Wells sticks to his utopian ideas. Like he has some moments where he wavers, but the idea that like you don't like violence is just violence is contagious like the idea that if you keep using violence to solve your problems you will never be able to stop being violent I thought that was really interesting and I thought I I feel like this film has a really optimistic perspective while still being very critical of the time period of the 1970s which again feels very Star Trek in a lot of ways I felt um mostly sad for H.G. Wells in those in that moment there are people before Jack the Ripper who murdered lots of other people. As as Tessa pointed out when we were talking about this earlier, those are mostly, you know, kind of covered under the premise, at least, of war. Jack the Ripper is credited often as the first serial killer, followed by the American flavor, who is H. H. Holmes which is like a, an amalgamation of H.G. Wells and the, the pseudonym he uses, Sherlock Holmes. But uh, Holmes is, H. H. Holmes is the, um, the Chicago World's Fair mm, killer, okay. the one who designed the hotel, the murder hotel. And the idea is, I've, I've heard this expressed before, and uh, The Devil in the White City kind of talks about this, talks about Holmes in that way, is that this kind of industrial revolution creates the possibility of the serial killer. And so the idea that if we move into the future, because utopia has to be in the future, it sure as hell isn't in the past, and it sure as hell isn't now, so the only place it can be in the future. The idea that we can get to utopia when we literally just got to the thing that's going to create the biggest and baddest evil, which you know we're still managing to get better at, despite the fact of somebody like Jack the Ripper in the 19th century going through all the things that happened in the 20th century. Like, it's it's like, why would you think? Like, it's, it's and they don't really focus on it well enough. It's right for H.G. Wells to think that Utopia will be in the future. But it's like, it's, it's like Michael Bluth reaching into the refrigerator with the, the door opened it. Ted Bird inside and he opens it up and he's like I don't know what I expected like it's very much like that it's like yeah. you have to immediately go well I don't know why I expected anything yeah. different that's fair my best friend's a serial killer of course the future is trash that's what I thought <laughs> thanks for tuning in speaking of um, serial killing well the profession of the people that uh, Jack the Ripper mostly serial killed um, sex plays a really huge part of this film it's interesting because I part of me thinks that it's portrayed pretty positively um, 
with regard to Amy. She's really open about her sexuality. And we, you know, we've spoken about this. Like, she's, she just seems really earnest. And, but on the other hand, there's obviously sex workers being murdered. But I don't think that that makes the movie, like, less sex positive. And it was just something, I just found Amy's portrayal of her sexuality very refreshing as we, I mean, I know we kind of talked about it already. I was afraid that this movie was going to start moralizing about sex work. Yeah. And how dangerous it is at, at the very least. But I actually don't think, I think that their deaths are portrayed tragically. Like a lot of people, H.G. Wells certainly as a character sees their deaths as tragic. And I don't feel like they're, I don't know if they're they're portrayed in a positive way, but I at least think that they're not portrayed in a negative yeah, way. Yeah, I, I don't think that they were portrayed positively either. I, I think, I think sex is not negative. I guess is right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That that seemed to make sense to me. I will say that I also really liked how this movie doesn't try to psychoanalyze Jack the Ripper. We get these strange details, like the 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 watch that plays the music that has like the brown haired woman in the in the thing, but they don't try to explain it. Yeah. They don't try to like tell us why he does what he does. Like he makes a reference to his mother at some point yeah. not being a good person. But and obviously we don't know who Jack the Ripper is, so all of this is like theoretical. Right. But I, I feel like that also helped not sensationalize the sex workers because they're treated more as victims. It's it's more about them as victims than it is about him as a killer. If that makes sense, we're not like obsessed with his like wh- why. Yeah. Why would he do this? We're more obsessed with like the tragedy of it. Yeah, I really didn't need or care why about him um so I was happy that I agree I I didn't need that and I mean it's a mystery like we don't actually need to know why this happens yeah. like especially with someone like Jack the Ripper that we literally don't know why it would have happened I was more invest yeah I I find that part I almost feel like that was just like a fun vehicle to have a little romance a little romance this but this I mean this movie is a romance like it does have like the violence and the 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 tension, but it, it is actually more about Amy and HG than it is about HG running after Jack the Ripper. Speaking of romance, how I feel like Amy's character, you know, midway through, I guess midway through their very quick courtship, <laughs> she's basically like, my job is really important to me. I left my husband because he wanted me to be a housewife. And I was like, that is not the life that I want. I don't want to be a housewife and mom, which I feel very um, similar to Amy in that regard. And by the ends of the movie, she basically... I don't think that there's a change of mind on the housewife part at all. But she basically realized like it was more important to her to be with H.G. Wells than to stay in the future without him. Nobody kisses like that. In, in 1979. So, I mean, like, you are not going to get that. You are not going to get your face literally sucked off <laughs> by a man with a weird mustache. Now, there are men with weird, weird mustaches, especially in San Francisco. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's it's undeniable. You know, like, I have a, I have a couple of feelings about this. 
One of them, though, is definitely that I appreciated the way that this movie positions love as being more important than, like, capitalism or power or science. And, like, HD actually says, like, love is what makes this all worth it. And I really appreciated that because I on the one hand wanted to sympathize with Amy saying like, hell no, like I'm not going to be a housewife because obviously the past sucked for women. It still sucks, but it really sucked, you know, in the, in the 19th century. But on the other hand, I was like, so you're just going to go back to this really boring job at the bank. Like, you know, like it felt like, (laughs) you know, like why is this your life? Like if, if you're, cause she's like, my job is my life. And it's like, why? Maybe (laughs) she just seems really boring. She really loves uh, talking to those foreign uh, people that come to exchange their money. is her excitement (laughs) here's your millennial moment for the day (laughs) i know you don't know what it's like to go work at a job keep bankers hours right no hustle no hustle bankers hours in a large metropolitan city let alone san francisco which is so unaffordable right now but you could have a job at a bank in downtown San Francisco and live still in downtown San Francisco on your own in a cute little apartment where you can like afford stuff. I guess that's true. That is something you don't fundamentally know about. You don't understand it. It's not a part of your life. It's not a part of my life. I don't think it exists anymore. It doesn't. And so... When she says, I don't want to leave this job, to me, it was all of the... Like, I was like, yeah. I get it. I get it. Because it's the independence, yeah. not the she job. It's freedom. everything that comes mm-hmm. with it. Yeah. And none of that comes with the job anymore. So, I mean, like, exactly. yeah, of course it doesn't yeah, make any so sense. Yeah, so if this movie was set today, I would be like, hell yeah, I'm getting this yeah. time machine. Yeah, but, like, maybe if fair. it was, like, in the 70s, that might not be what I thought the other the other thing that I had is like obviously this movie isn't historically accurate and I obviously don't want it to be because it's a movie about time travel and Jack the Ripper and H.G. Wells and that's fine but I just didn't like the one thing that kind of struck me as odd is that these movies have the potential of like reifying the hero status that someone like Wells has like a lot of people are like oh H.G. Wells the father of science fiction which by the way no Mary Shelley wrote her book much earlier than H.G. Wells did and H.G. Wells has credited her as an influence anyway that's a pet peeve um but like he has this like status in like our minds as this literary scientific hero and these this film wants to look at him in that way which again is fine but, like, the actual truth about H.G. Wells and his love life is that he divorced his first wife for his student, who was named Amy, and then cheated on her for years with Margaret Sanger, a.k.a. racist. You know, like, it's one of those things where I'm like, okay, this is really fun, and you kind of have to, like, turn off that part of your brain that wants to, like, question, like, why they're using this particular person as, like, their hero. But at the end of the day, I worry that sometimes movies like this don't cause us to question men who use their position toxically. And so like that, I guess that would be my, my opinion on this particular story arc is that I'm just like, it works if you think about this HG Wells as being a completely different person than the actual HG Wells. Yeah. Which I guess he kind of was because Malcolm McDowell refused to actually imitate HG Wells voice. 
because it's so squeaky. Have you ever heard an actual recording of H.G. Wells? No, I haven't. Oh, my God. Do yourself a favor. I'm going to. Find a recording because Malcolm McDowell listened to his voice and said, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) We respect Malcolm McDowell's choices in this instance. I don't know all of the... I don't know enough about him to say that in general, but I do like Malcolm McDowell a great deal. That's all. That was my my tirade for the day. You're allowed one tirade per day. (laughs) This film is so... I watched it in March, actually, and so I was worried that watching it yesterday I was going to be, like, a little bit bored. Because I've watched, actually, all three of the movies we've discussed um, in the past year, and I was not bored watching one of them, so any of them. So for me, these films are just so rewatchable. I want to move on, though. If, if no one else has anything to say on time after time, we can do our um, Altair Water Thirst Quencher for, the, for this film. I feel like we're kind of all on the same page with this one, but... I mean... This is another, like, the obvious choice is the best choice answer. Yeah, I usually don't have a lot to say in these sections. I just, I made my note, and I feel really good about it. It's more like Mary Steam Virgin. Am I right? Because she's on fire. (laughs) I'm asking if that's a Back to the Future 3 reference, because don't they make, like, isn't it like a steam train or something? It could be. Did I think about that? No, (laughs) but it could be. I was trying to pun. But yeah, they have a lot of chemistry despite the the kissing issue. I wonder. <laughs> but they, I mean, which I mean, they, he could have been doing that for comedy's sake more than anything oh, else. Yeah. But like, I, I don't doubt but it. But like, they they're both very attractive people who have chemistry with each other. I mean, what's not to like? I wonder how long after this film happened they got married and if they met on this film. I didn't really. I don't normally look up like people's romance stuff, but they were married from 1980 to 1990, so something had to and, be going correctly for a little and bit. And who did she marry after that? Our beloved Ted Danson. That is correct. They're my thirst quench as well. I you can't see this as I've said many times, and Sam and Tessa will. I probably got it from them, you know, podcasting visual medium. I threw like a really cute photo in our notes of the two of them. And now I'm just like looking at them with hard eyes. She's so young too. Like, I mean, she's always been attractive, but like, I don't think I've ever seen a film where she was this young. Yeah. I liked um, just one part when, um, when she realizes that he must have just gone into like every bank to find out, to find John Leslie Stevenson, and she's like, "Would you have gone to bed?" Like she gets like really angry and is like, "Would you have gone to bed with anyone who would have given you information?" And then he looks at her or says something, and she's like, "No, I know that's not true." And like it just felt really. They had a special connection, and she knew it, and it was just really sweet. She knows what she wants. So join us next week. For a themed episode of Miss That Monkey, where we talk about 2022 films that for whatever reason we missed this year. So join us for a discussion of Fire Island and Jurassic World Dominion. Elise, where can people find you online and in their headphones? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Elise underscore Tendi, E-L-Y-S-E underscore T-E-N-D-I. And you can find my podcast, Pod Wraiths, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. 
on Twitter and Instagram at PodRates, P-O-D-W-R-A-I-T-H-S. Thank you so much for coming on and assigning us these films. I really enjoyed them. I'm glad. I love these Assigns episodes. I feel like we're better friends after Assigns episodes. <laughs> Sam, We learned a lot about ourselves. We learned a lot about each other. We learned a lot about things we hadn't seen before, which is the entire point of the podcast. Yeah, that all works out. I feel out. like this is like in the spirit of monkey that, that we really want for this, this show. We do monkey business and monkey spirit. <laughs> Sam, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris nine. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Og's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all 41 of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that podcast on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Og's Book Club. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, and what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at monkeybacklog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.